Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today our guest is Donald Charbonnet. Donald has over 45 years experience in the industry and first started out at his father's business called American Rental out of Louisiana. He would then go on to work at companies such as Buckner Rental Service, Neff Rental, Nations Rent, Louisiana Cat. He would start his own company called Equipco. He wrote a book called Screw You. At one point, he was the host of a radio show called Rental Equip. And today, he specializes in mergers and acquisitions in the equipment rental industry. I'm, I'm really excited for this one. Uh, this is one of the most experienced people I've had on the show. Donald, to kick things off, can you talk about how you got into the equipment rental industry? Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on. I think it's a, a, a very valuable uh, content that you bring into the industry. And I, and I wish you the greatest of success in your, uh, in your ongoing podcast. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, my, my dad started uh, his company in 1955. Uh, I was five years old. He saw an ad for a United Rental franchise. He went to visit them and decided that he could come back to New Orleans and do it himself. And quite frankly, he did. And being one of eight kids, we all did something in the business. And uh, in grammar school, my Saturday job was sweeping out open trailers, which was back then a real popular item, and rolling up extension cords. I guess I was about 10 at the time and uh, washing down lawn equipment. I uh, continued working summers in high school and in college. I worked uh, after after class almost every day and weekends. And, uh, you know, the day before I graduated from Loyola here in New Orleans, my dad said, well, by the way, what are you going to do with your life? (laughs) I said, well, I'd like to come into business with you. And so at that point, uh, the ripe age of 21, uh, I started full-time in the, in, the, in the industry. Wow. So 1955, like your father would have been one of the founding people of the equipment rental industry. There, there wasn't many rental businesses around back then. That, that is correct. He was a pioneer in, in the southern part of the country. Uh, you hear the names of, uh, of the Grasses and uh, Decker and Greenberg out on the West Coast. But uh, he was pretty much, there was one gentleman uh, who had been in the rental business before him, but he was in the China rental business called Hearst Rental. We ended up buying him out. But uh, his father used to deliver glassware in China by horse and buggy. So uh, the, the concept has been around for a long time. I've heard of Sam Greenberg. That was one of my earlier guests. That was actually his grandfather. And one of my other guests, uh, Andy Kennard from Australia, he mentioned that Andy Greenberg was a mentor to him when he went over to Southern California to learn about the industry. So that's, that's quite amazing. So what was it like running a rental business back then? Well, they didn't have as much bigger equipment. Most people stayed kind of small. Uh, biggest thing might have been a bobcat. Uh, many excavators came into the scene later on. Uh, but in our, in our family business, she was dead. If, if, if dad thought we could rent it, we had it. We had everything from, from televisions to medical equipment and party goods and uh, light construction equipment, uh, compressors that aren't even made anymore called American Genback. Uh, as, as the industry grew, the equipment grew and the technology grew. And so, uh, you know, we, we had to grow with there or somebody else was going to come in. And his strategy in New Orleans alone, we had 10 locations uh, just here. 
And uh, was that the more you spread out, the more you keep competition from coming in. And I think he was very successful in, in doing that. I like how back then it was basically just anything. TVs, as you said, medical equipment, uh, construction equipment. It didn't matter if you could rent it. He had it, which is quite interesting. So we'll get into what happened to that business a bit later. I want to talk a little bit more about you. So what was your career? Like, What other companies did you eventually work at? So here goes. Uh, my family business was American Renault. When I, when I got out of college, uh, dad had seven locations in New Orleans. And again, being one of eight, we all did something in the business. But uh, I was the only one who decided to make it a career and spent full time with him. And I helped him grow it from seven to 17 locations across South Louisiana. Uh, I actually became president towards the end, but we lost the business to a horrific accident uh, that, that really cost us the whole business and caused us to go uh, bankrupt to protect the business. And then the administrative cost got so high, we just couldn't see our way out. Uh, from there, I jumped over to Buckner Rental Service, which is based south of New Orleans in Homa. And Robert and I were, were friendly competitors. He actually used to sell us air compressors years ago. And he had seven locations. Uh, I, I went to him, we had a three hour interview and uh, he gave me a job as a sales manager. And three months later uh, became general manager. And then uh, we sold it in a couple of years to a group of investment bankers and I became president of that company. And then we grew it from seven to 27 locations. Uh, from Pensacola, Florida, all the way to Laredo, Texas. And so it was a very busy, busy time. Uh, some were green starts and some were acquisitions along the way. And then uh, I guess the consolidation was kind of taking place during all that time. Neff bought us, Neff Rental, who's uh, rec more recently been bought by United Rental. And uh, I became their vice president of acquisitions. And that was a really fun time, uh, travels all over the country, met some super, super people. Uh, we did a bunch of deals together. Uh, I always joke that United Rentals had 12 guys out in the country and, and Neff had me. Uh, but they had chosen me because I'd been in the business longer than most people had been that were working for the company. So as the consolidation was slowing down, uh, I was asked to join a good friend of mine, Don O'Neill from Fort Worth. Uh, the O'Neills today have a company called Rental One, uh, but back then they had A1 Rental, and uh, he was he sold to Nations Rent. I was based in Fort Lauderdale, and he was president. And he called me and said, "I need your help. Uh, I'm on the 13th floor of a office building in a coat and tie, and there's not another person who knows anything about rental up here." So uh, I committed to that. I left Neff. Uh, I started commuting to Fort Lauderdale with Nation's Rent. Uh, Don was president. I was uh, director of operations. We had 137 locations. Uh, and I was there for a number of months until they announced that they were going to merge with RSC. Again, all this was during the big consolidation that was taking place. And I figured that there was going to be a bloodbath of middle management. Uh, at the same time, Caterpillar Corporate was a uh, pushing their dealers to go into the full service rent to rent business. And so I answered an ad uh, for the Louisiana uh, cat dealership. And so I took a, uh, that job with them. 
and started uh, their program from scratch, was, was uh, director of operations. And that was a lot of fun because we had kind of a clean slate. We hired people from different companies. Uh, we opened seven green starts over three years all over the state. It, it was a fun but crazy time doing about a thousand miles a week. Uh, at the end of that gig, Cat Corporate came in and did an audit of my new division that was several years old. And at the end of the week, they said that I was doing everything right and the owners were doing everything wrong. And so egos got in the way and I left. <laughs> uh, I ran a couple of John Deere construction stores and then Katrina hit and I saw an opportunity as New Orleans was underwater to go back into the rental business. And so on with some investors, I opened up a company called Equipco in downtown New Orleans, which was right next to the Superdome. And uh, did that for four years, uh, stopped, I wrote a book, uh, started a radio show, podcasts, uh, and now I'm doing M&A work. Uh, the last five years before I uh, left the rental business full time, uh, I worked with a, a friend of mine uh, who had a pipeline maintenance company, industrial painting and blasting and fabrication called Marlin Services, based in Homa. And uh, he hired me as his COO. He knew that I was a growth oriented guy. And uh, we took that company from one location doing about 13 million to four locations in four states doing 62. And so it was sold also to a, uh, uh, private investment group at, at that time. So that and a handful of words is my career. What a listing. Wow, that is absolutely unbelievable. Like, you would have seen so much change over the over the years as well. Well, and you know, Mark, I, I, I always worked hard, had a good work ethic, and uh, it just seems like every time I got to the top, something beyond my control took that apple sort of way uh, the carrot away and uh which is why I, I wrote a book called screw you the comeback is always stronger than the setback because no matter what happened in my life uh i kept pushing and and ended up falling back into a good thing uh thanks to a lot of good people along the way well i think in the end if you've got the right work ethic and you're well known among your peers you're always going to be successful in in whatever endeavors you you take on even with whatever setbacks are sort of put in front of you. So today you're, you're looking after mergers and acquisitions, but can you maybe can you talk a little bit about what some of the services you provide the industry? It's an interesting time. Uh, COVID especially hit the event rental people very, very hard. Uh, you probably know that. I mean, some of the revenues were off like 90%. WGL Consulting was started by James Waite and a couple of other guys. You may know that James is the legal counsel for the American Rental Association. And, uh, and by the way, I spent a good time doing volunteer work with ARA during my early career. Uh, but then when I jumped ship to go to work for other companies, I really wasn't able to continue that. Um, but basically it's a broker company and it's, it's, it's putting buyers and sellers together and I'm an independent agent uh, with them and, and was and am delighted that they asked me to, to come work with them. Uh, I still chat with, with other folks uh, about different projects and 
Uh, a lot of people ask advice about, you know, what do I do if I'm getting ready to sell? And there's a bunch of things that you can tell people for everything from, uh, you know, clean the damn place up, uh, get your image looking right, make sure your uh, depreciation schedule matches with the actual inventory that you have, uh, dig into the numbers. If you can afford it, get audited financials. That takes a lot of the guesswork out of the potential buyer. So uh, that's uh, spent a lot of time, uh, fortunately, just a lot of emailing and, and chatting with people over the phone. Uh, and, and it's real important to, you know, I almost call it like match.com that you've got a guy who wants to sell, but finding just that right buyer, especially now geographically with all the, the majors that have, you know, locations in so, so many cities, it's very hard to find uh, another independent uh, that wants to grow maybe some more and, uh, and stretch himself out and, and buy a good company. Okay, so maybe we'll split this into two sections. I'll, I want to talk about both the buyers and the sellers. Let's let's start off with the selling side. So let's say that I'm a business owner and I'm looking to sell my business. What are maybe some of the tips that these people should be thinking about to ensure that they're getting connected to the right people or their business is set up in the right way so they can get the most out of the potential sale? The biggest, the biggest question that I hear over and over again from sellers, and I'll get into some of the basic details of what they can do, but it, it's a lot of it is how are their people going to be treated? And so let's face it, a, a deal's a deal, but they want to make sure that the people who help them build that business will be treated fairly. So, and I learned this a lot firsthand from uh, being VP of acquisitions at, at Neff. And also, and, and I was working with Kevin Fitzgerald at that time, great guy. And, uh, and then at Buckner did, uh, as president, I was kind of the lead to go out and do the acquisitions also. And then in the M&A work today. So this is very much a people business. And so a lot of times they're concerned that some you know, big conglomerate is going to come in and just get rid of all their people. And uh, so they want to they make sure that, that the company that they're selling to uh, has a good corporate culture along the way and that their people that have worked so hard for them over the years won't just be thrown out on the street. Now that, that may happen over time, depending on personalities. Uh, and there's been so much consolidation with the big guys behind the big guys that I'm sure there's been a lot of people that have been put out the pasture or found, had to find other careers. But as far as the, the actual top five things I started to mention, uh, the physical appearance of the facility, uh, is it clean? Is it orderly? Uh, it's a wash rack neat. They can be neat. Is the service area overrun with, uh, you know, filters and rags and is there oil leaking all over the place? All that does is open the door for environmental issues. And there's some things that you can do if you have, you know, a, a couple of year plan to maybe take some of the uh, expenses that you have as far as family, other expenses like uh, three daughters' cars are on the insurance policy and their cell phones and paying their health insurance and doing some of that cleaning up uh, can help, but you can also do an adjusted EBITDA number that can pull that out at the end. So it's not the most important thing. Uh, what, is, what does the equipment look like? Does it need a little 
fresh coat of paint every once in a while just to uh, make it look uh, like they have a good program of keeping up their image along the way. Uh, what is the age of the fleet? Have they kept up with the times and, and done a fleet turnover? So the average age might be, say, 36, 42, 48 months, depending on the age of the, of the, of the company that they're in. And, uh, you know, little, little things like uh, having people with the same kind of shirts on with be it a polo with a logo on it or a uniform program and uh, even the service trucks, you know, what kind of condition are they in? And uh, I mentioned earlier the depreciation schedule, you know, at some point in the due diligence process, a buyer wants to make sure that he's buying all the stuff that they say they're going to buy. And so it never hurts for every six months or so to take a physical inventory. And uh, actually in our business way back when, we did an inventory every week of every item that we owned. And uh, we caught some folks doing some things that weren't right along the way. Uh, we had a whole inventory department, in fact, uh, that, would, that would keep up with that. So knowing that your assets are there, do you have a bunch of junk equipment, you know, piled up in a corner that's maybe uh, discontinued that ought to just be thrown away? And that's one of those image things that, that comes up uh, along the way too. So I would say that those are some of the top things uh, that, I would, that I would recommend. Yeah, so just the little things to, to make that image really improve go a long way when you are trying to sell your business. And then so what maybe should the sellers be asking the, the buyers potentially? Well, again, the sellers should be asking about the, the people issues more much as anything. Uh, buyers, buyers also want to know what kind of uh, software you're using so you, they can analyze what kind of integration uh, they're going to have to go through the overall facility. Uh, you know, you're going to have to do a phase one environmental check to make sure there's, uh, there's no oil leakage problems or fuel tank problems along the way. So I'd say from the, from the seller side, you know, the, the biggest thing, of course, is maximizing uh, the price for them. And sometimes if they don't hit it, uh, they can always do things like an earn out uh, to say, yeah, I'll take this much now. Uh, and then if I hit these numbers next year, then I'll get the rest of my money that I'm really looking for if they can't, if they can't agree on terms. And I think as part of the acquisition process as a seller, there's typically the, the two avenues that they can take, which is they're either selling the business and then leaving or they're selling the business and potentially staying on as well. Is that is that common in what you see? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you'd be surprised that people want to sell, but they like the business and they say, I'll stay on, you know, uh, depending on the situation. And if they feel like they have a relationship with the potential buyer, that they can work with them. So it's not always that the guy has to just sell and, and see you later. Many times they're going to want them to stay on for a period of time for transition to, uh, to get to know the people better because you know, a lot of times you go in these places under the cover of darkness. Uh, I remember I had, a, I used to have a, a, a nice Neff briefcase with Neff on the side. I had, when I did acquisitions, I had to get a, a plain Jane briefcase so they, they would think I was some insurance guy or safety guy that was coming in to look around the place. And so you don't want to play your cards. You don't want your people to think that you're thinking about selling. Uh, because there's a number of things that can happen. They can get worried. They can start looking for other jobs. You might have equipment disappear. There's all kinds of things that, that can happen. And, uh, and, I've, and I've, I've seen it all. 
So basically, if I see you turn up at my company with a briefcase, I should start getting worried, is what you're saying. So um, so then from a buyer's side, like what is some of the process that they should be thinking about? Are they maybe first thinking location? Are they thinking maybe similar equipment? Do they go to the broker first? Like what, what, what's the typical process for them to sort of vet someone that they actually want to acquire? It's typically it's geography first. And so uh, if I've got a listing with somebody, I'm going to see who's already in that market. So that excludes them from going in there. And then you might find uh, another independent company that carries the same type of equipment uh, as you just mentioned, which is, which is very critical. If you're just in the habit of burning lawnmowers and garden tillers, you're not going to jump into 80 foot man lifts uh, right off the bat. And so uh, that combination is, is very, very important. But so they're looking for geography, they look for types of equipment, they're looking for environmental issues, and they're looking for transition and how hard is this transition going to be uh, once everybody gets together on, on the price, which, which is always just a different story. You know, that's for, that's for the buyer and seller uh, to hash out. And so what's your thoughts on the current situation in the U.S.? in regards to maybe the consolidation uh, is are the acquisitions maybe through to the maturity stage at the moment or is like what what's your your general opinion of of the current situation i know mark that there's a lot of rental companies for sale whether or not uh, and, and with covid some of them have had you know dips of uh, 20 30% and i'm talking pretty much the construction side of the business uh I've seen a couple of uh, event rental companies go on the market for sale. There's not a big demand to buy those. Uh, the construction ones are rebounding slowly, if you will, uh, as, as you see the uh, unemployment numbers drop and the economy getting back on its feet after some of this COVID. And I'm not going to say all because, you know, we all see the spike in the numbers along the way. Uh, but, uh, it's a lot of independents that have reached the age of maturity where they're looking to cash out and talking to uh, a number of, of people just over the last number of months. Uh, there's not always that perfect fit for them right at this time. So if it's a smaller operation, you know, I might try to talk to a buyer about well, what about a small satellite store? that can at least bring you more customers. Or if you buy someone else, it might keep some competition from coming in, which is always our philosophy about expanding uh, so that uh, so they didn't have you know, 20 more people in the New Orleans market just to, to pick a city uh, than you would if, uh, if you were, you know, take a place like, like Dallas, Fort Worth. I mean, that place is just continues to boom. You take Atlanta, uh, every time I go to those places, there's, there's tower cranes everywhere. There's construction stuff going on. And, you know, here in little New Orleans, we don't, the only tower crane we have is taking down a hotel that, that collapsed. So uh, that there's not a whole lot going on in this, in this market. But all the majors are here, and uh, they're all getting a piece of the puzzle. South Louisiana, uh, in particular, has a big petrochemical market. There's about 90 plants between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And so there's a, a lot of battle for that business along the way to get into the industrial side of the, of the business. 
But I would assume in New Orleans, the, the pumping side of it must, must be quite big with a lot of the, the hurricanes that come through. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, I used to deal with Godwin pumps, and they, they used to call Louisiana pump heaven. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, disasters create work, unfortunately. Yeah, well. that's, that's right. We've certainly had our shares. Ah, uh, well, I've never actually been to New Orleans before. I was meant to go to the ARA show, but that obviously is being cancelled. Hopefully next year, sometime. We'll see. So how do you think that the equipment rental industry has changed in the past 20 years? Well, without question, the biggest change has been the consolidation. Consolidation took away all the, I would call them the personal relationships that we used to have in, in the day. You know, it wasn't uncommon to go into another operation and the owners could come out and talk to you about their numbers on the book, uh, real operating issues. And, and it was just much more personal. And I know some of that still takes place. Uh, I know ARA has put groups together to, to talk about those kinds of things, but it's not like it was in the infant stages. Uh, even today, there's a lot of stealing of employees that, uh, that never used to happen. That would, you know, if one of your good buddies has a good guy and, uh, it just wasn't right for you to go hire them. And I think a lot of that takes place today because as the industry has matured, fortunately, there's a lot more experienced people in rental. It used to be, you know, 20 something years ago, if a guy came in looking for a job and he had rental on his resume, he said, oh, come on, when can you start? You know, you know, the difference between a, an appliance styling and a Bobcat, you know, you're in. So, uh, there's a lot more safety and training issues. The equipment has gotten smarter. It's gotten bigger. Uh, so the biggest change I would say is the type and quality of equipment available. Uh, years ago, there wasn't an aerial industry, for example, and now it's the biggest part of the rental industry. And uh, the quality of the equipment is far more superior than it used to be. So I think those, you know, consolidation is just natural uh, growth is what's changed uh, th this business. And uh, gee whiz, all the big guys still seem to be doing well. So uh, there's got there's got to be enough construction out there to keep everybody busy. And Mark, also what I, I failed to mention is the technology that's taking place today. You know, you look at companies like like Big Rents and Equipment Share, who Equipment Share owns a lot of have their own physical locations now, but Big Rents doesn't own anything other than they, they did an acquisition with Lizzie Lift that was kind of in the re-rent business also, but they can provide a tremendous service for a company uh, that might have projects in four cities instead of having to go and, and source from uh, United or Hertz or Sundown or Ahern or, or, or whoever the case may be to call one company a one-stop shop and handle the whole thing. Now you might get equipment from five different people. And uh, I also see, uh, on a lot of job sites that there's different suppliers supplying different equipment. And by that, I mean, I think the project managers get so inundated with, with salesmen calling on them uh, all the time that they throw everybody a bone and say, okay, uh, you, you get, you get the man lift, you get the light tower, you get an air compressor, you get a welding machine and they're kind of spreading it around to keep all their, all their options open and not putting all their eggs in one basket. And that's, that's just from 
driving around different cities and seeing what's on job sites. Yeah, Big Rents is a great example of technology. That's unbelievable what they've built up. And I think it's only a matter of time before more people start following them. But that, it's it's an interesting place. And I think technology is going to play a big part in the next five years in the equipment rental industry. So let's get back to you for a bit. If you could give your younger self some advice, what would you say? When I look back, I think the thing that I wish I had done was to become an investment banker. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but it kind of works a little bit with some of the M&A stuff. Uh, Those are the guys behind the scenes who are making the big bucks on big deals. You know, my dad wanted me to go to law school. I was not somebody who wanted more schooling. I'd had enough. And I think people in this business get more street smarts learning because you're dealing with so many different issues and people every day. And, and the other thing, uh, looking back, is to bury yourself in the numbers. Uh, any second, third, or fourth generation people out there, you gotta know what makes the business tick. Uh, I've heard it too many times that there's a father-son operation and the dad doesn't really key the, the son or daughter uh, into the fray of really uh, talking about you know, how the company makes money away from cut expenses. Uh, that also leads to having a, a good relationship with your banker in case there's a family catastrophe and suddenly you got a 24 year old in charge of a bigger company because his dad's not along anymore to guide him in the right direction. So uh, that that's the advice I would give myself is to uh, know more about the accounting side. A lot of that's been self-taught over the years uh, but if you have a chance to, to do some of that type of work and, and crunch some numbers and look at different businesses and, and see how they run, uh, that would be something that I, would, I wish I could do over again. Yeah, but I think also, like you're doing so well in the mergers and acquisition side, potentially because like you've got so much experience in the industry. So I think... If you were to skip all that experience, you, it might be more challenging. I'm not sure, but yeah, I think all of it sort of adds up to, I guess, the person you've become today. I mean, I, I, I grew through the ranks pretty quickly uh, with the with the rental association. I was on a lot of committees. They didn't, uh, please don't take this the wrong way, but they didn't have a lot of people who even had the chance to go to college. And uh, and I really don't know that I, that I made the most of that opportunity. Uh, but so, you know, I was on the education committee. I tried to start a, uh, a finance committee way back when, uh, I was elected to be the vice president of the association. And then when we lost the business to the accident, I had to resign from that position. And, uh, I mean, the association does a lot, a lot of good. Uh, there's a lot of education stuff that kind of, when you say looking back, a lot of what they're doing is bringing that to the forefront now so that in 10 years, people don't have to go back and say, I wish I'd learned this or that, but they're bringing that education right to the forefront. I'm glad you brought, you brought up the, the ARA. So how important do you think these trade associations like the American rental association are to these equipment rental businesses today? You know, they used to be, in my opinion, critical. But, but things have changed. It used to be that members participated in panel discussions 
I can remember being in Las Vegas and I had to make three different presentations to three different groups along with fellow members that, that had the same task at hand. Uh, the friendships that I've made through the association are second to none. I'm still in touch with many, many people that uh, were second generation people along the way. And, uh, and that's just so fulfilling. I mean, e email's so great because you can send a guy an email and at least you, you know, you, he knows you're thinking about him just to send something like that. Or if you have a, a question or a problem uh, to do that. So the friendships that I've made along the way uh, are, are second to none. Uh, but the trade shows, when you look around, you know, when, when I went this year, I, I thought to myself, I stood back and said, there's so much of the same equipment. There's different manufacturers, but I mean, how many different 60 foot man lifts do they have to be in the market? You know, you don't see as much air compressor business as you used to, but the aerial business is just popping up all over the place. And there's more stuff coming in from foreign countries uh, that, that kind of changes things along the way and, and forces people to get more competitive in their pricing, even though they're having to put more technology into their machines. So I think it's important to go to the shows and, and mix. I think the, the seminars are a lot different uh, than, than what I was accustomed to. Uh, I actually used to carry Bring, bring a portable typewriter with me to finish writing some stuff in, in hotels along the way. Uh, but it was a good experience to stand in front of people and talk and share ideas. And I don't know if that there's much idea sharing uh, as there used to be, you know, back 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, well, I think the three main things I get out of it is obviously learning about the new types of equipment that are out there and the new software and technology as well, which is constantly evolving. Uh, I would say the the keynote speakers are always great and typically it's good listening to even just some of the general speakers that are talking about the industry and some of the changes and just providing advice. And then, but number one is definitely the networking side. So being able to network with my peers, network with people I don't know, learn from maybe customers, organize some type of conference. It's a great place to sort of invite and meet people. It's always just a great place to just network and learn in general. There's a lot of, there's a lot of walking to do too. That's true. Yeah, if you're going to somewhere like Con Expo, which I went earlier this year, like it's spread all across the strip basically. Like you, you'd almost need like a buggy to get around there. Roller skates or something. <laughs> that would be amazing. Imagine, imagine you get to Con Expo or you get to the ARA and on arrival you get your ticket you get your bags, you get your badges, all that sort of stuff. And then you also get a pair of roller skates so you can get around easy. That would be quite amazing, amazing scene. Everyone sort of do that. I can't say it would be the best thing for you, but if you've already had surgeries on your shoulder, you could almost see more surgeries occurring on your knees potentially. There's not much left. I've had 25 surgeries already. <laughs> That's great. So... Who do you think played a big influence on your career, maybe from like a mentor perspective? I think without question, it, it was my dad, uh, who I worked with for 20, 20 years after, after school. Uh, he instilled a work ethic uh, in me and a sense of fairness in, in how to treat people. And I think that's a trait that, you know, it's not always what you say, it's how you say it. That, uh, that he kind of taught me along the way that not to be too hot-headed, uh, 
you know, everybody needs to be treated treated fairly. But I, I think I learned uh, something good from a number of people uh, that I have I've had the pleasure to work with. Uh, Robert Buckner taught me so much about servicing equipment. Uh, Kevin Fitzgerald, who's just uh, now at the investment group, uh, REIC. Uh, when I spent that year doing acquisitions with him, I learned a tremendous amount about things to look for in, in financials and, and the like. And uh, most recently, even in the pipeline maintenance industry where I, where I was uh, with my good friend, Travis Bergeron, who, who had brought me in. Uh, this was an industry I didn't know anything about other than the fact that they rented a lot of the equipment that they needed for the jobs uh, because we didn't have the capital to, to buy it. Uh, but I can tell you the one of the best lines that I learned from Travis and uh, he calls me Sharp, and we still talk a couple of times a month. Uh, he says, Sharp, no matter what happens, it's either lessons or blessings that you're going to get out of it. So I, I've always loved that statement that he came up with uh, because not everything's going to be right, but you got to learn from it. <laughs> Such a great saying. Now I wanted to talk about this, Briefly, you you mentioned that you lost the family business to a disaster. And you talk about this in your book, Screw You, which is really about when you get knocked down and you come back. But if you're happy to, I'd like to talk about what that disaster was and and what made your business go under, basically. Well, uh and it is all laid out in, in the book that's on Amazon, but we were big, probably the biggest in the state with chairs and tables. We had 10,000 chairs and a thousand eight foot tables. And we had rented uh, a bunch of chairs and tables to the Lions club who was having a bingo fundraiser inside the Louisiana Superdome. And our crews had gone there in the morning, set everything up and, then the crew went back about 6.30 in the evening to pick everything up. Uh, one of our drivers went up into the stands and smoked what is called a clickum. And a clickum is a marijuana cigarette that is dipped in formaldehyde. And when you smoke it, it gives you a PCP effect. So he pretty much was out of his mind, jumped in a truck, drove it around the side, the inside of the dome because we, we were stacking chairs and tables and there was a crowd of people at, at one end and he ran over them all. And the, uh, the lawsuits just were prohibitive. Uh, that's why we had to put the company into bankruptcy to try to protect it under 11. And then the administrative costs got so ridiculous that we just had to fold our tents and call it a day. So it's a, it happened January the 6th. Uh, I know the driver. I know the lady's name to date. It's one of those things that, that changed my life. Wow, that is that is terrible. It, it's crazy to think that one person can have such an influence in a negative way on so many people from just one act. That's right. I mean, he ruined a lot of family lives and, and jobs along the way, too. Uh it was just, it was just a horrible, horrible time. I, my, my lead guy called me before cell phones and 
I went down there and started to see trails of blood and there's actually a uh, prison bars inside the Superdome where they arrest people who can hold them. And uh, January the 6th was actually my dad's birthday. I had just left his house after having a nice dinner. And then I had to go and see him and tell him uh, what had happened. And uh, it was heartbreaking. I can't imagine how that conversation would go down with your father. That is it's something that you would, you'd never want anyone to go through. Have you, all, all these years later, have you spoken with that driver? No, but you know, some weeks later, his church called us and see if we'd hire him back. And I said, if you got a dictionary, look up fat chance. So I'm a Christian guy, but I can only take so much. That is crazy. It's, <laughs> there's one thing like trying to ask for forgiveness, I guess, but then asking for your job back after doing that. Like, it's just insanity. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Yeah, he, yeah. Uh, nobody died. One lady uh, was an invalid for life, and I'm sure has since passed on. But ever, there were several other people who got hurt. Uh, and when it happened, Mark, he opened the door of the truck, and he just started walking away like nothing had happened. And security got there, and it was all downhill from there. They even had to take the truck and trailer into custody and so then we had to go back to the shop and get more trucks just to pick up the rest of the equipment that was still there. It was a, it was a three-quarter dually with about a 20-foot enclosed trailer behind it. Yeah, as I said, well, I hope nobody ever has to go through something like that. That's just, it almost sounds like something out of a movie or something. All right, well, back to you, Positive Vibes. Uh, how do you define success and what do you think was a defining moment for you? Well, I mean, success to me is the ability to get along with others and, and helping them grow and, and giving back every chance that you get. Uh, I, I can tell you the number of people I was in charge of uh, during my career that uh, there are still many of them in there today. And uh, even with the radio show podcast I had uh, that I shut down in, in March, I had uh, people writing me emails thank you for talking about this. I never heard about this before. My dad never taught me this or that along the way. And so that, that giving back was part of the reason for, for doing the show. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's really every business is a people business. And so the ability to get along and, and like when I went to Marlin services in the pipeline business, I didn't know anything, but to come in at the second highest position, you've got to earn people's trusts. And sometimes that's not so easy to do. You got to know how to treat them until they, you know, earn uh, the respect that, that you hope that they will see uh, as someone who's really there to work with them and not against them and nothing's beneath you uh, also to, to work. Uh, I, I guess what's kind of funny, one of the, one, <laughs> this may sound strange, but one of the, one of the best compliments I got once, uh, I had stepped away from the industry and was selling forklifts and, and making calls on rental companies. And I ran into an old employee uh, who was with uh, another company. And he said, man, we're sure glad you're not in the business anymore. <laughs> so we don't have to compete against you. <laughs> so we, we both have a good laugh and you just never know what the future's going to bring. I like what you said about earning people's trust. So maybe what advice would you give to business owners or managers around how they can, I guess, gain the trust from their employees and 
and yeah, be that that leader that their people are looking up to and that, that trusted advisor. Not have all the answers is, is one. Again, when I look back, uh, I left the family business to go to Buckner. He had several district managers that could have become general managers, but he wanted somebody from the outside. And, uh, and I'd had more experience than them in the industry, uh, but that was the biggest uh, chance of respect that I had to do, just like I just mentioned with, with the pipeline business. And even when I went to the Caterpillar dealership, there were people there who thought, you know, I should get that position and, and start that new division and, and blah, blah, blah. And so it's, uh, it's just treating people and getting input from them. I think the best thing that a manager can do is somebody comes to you with a problem is to say, what would you do? And, and hear them out and let te- train them to think so that you don't have to be bothered with every nickel and dime decision that comes up along the way. If they make a mistake, it's okay. And you learn from the mistake. Like I say earlier, it's either lessons or blessings along the way. So uh, te- teaching them how to, how to think for themselves and, and put themselves in position. And you don't always have to agree with them, but you can always say, you know, that's a good idea, but I think we ought to try it this way first and then see how it comes out from there. I think that's some great advice, even for any business, really. If you tell your employees or people that report to you all the answers, like how are they meant to grow? So it's going to build culture. It's going to let them learn. It's going to feel like give them a sense of empowerment. And it's just going to, as I said, like let them grow on their own as well. Exactly. All right, Donald. Well, look, I really want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's been a real pleasure and, and good luck to you in the future too. Please like, share, and follow the Rental Journal podcast, and I'll see everyone in next week's episode.